Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Thank you, JJ. I also want to thank my listeners from all across this globe. It is so exciting when I hear my guests share their stories and then when I hear from people who have been touched by these stories. That's what this show is all about, sharing the message of never giving up hope, always hanging on to hope, and the results that come because of that. So thank you both listeners and guests. We're now in close to a hundred countries where this message of never giving up hope is heard and it's growing every day. One thing that I love about my guests has the basic same message and that is don't give up. There's a better future ahead. Hang on. Stick with it. You'll get there. Each one is such a different type of message that they're giving in that their own personal story addresses that. For example, if they have a, gone through extreme physical problems or abuse problems or financial problems, there is somebody out there that can relate to you and help you. And these are the people that are sharing their stories. With me today is Ellen Cohen. Ellen has a BA in political science. He has a Juris Doctor degree from the University of Connecticut Law School. He has practiced law for 35 years and was chief counsel for the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development. He was on the board of directors of Lifelong Learning Centers, which is a company operating educational programs for children living in various federally assisted apartment complexes. He is also the author of, now this title really intrigues me, Crocodile Mothers Eat Their Young. And he wrote this novel based on personal experience when he was at the young age of 69 years old. When a lot of people are thinking about retiring, Alan chose a new career. He and his wife became foster parents in the late 1990s, and they today they are doing workshops aimed at foster parents of teenagers. And I think, as I was talking with Alan briefly before the show, that this not only applies to people who are considering fostering parents, but also people who just have to deal 
and understand teenagers in a world that is very different than what we grew up in. And so my hat is off to Ellen and his wife, who I did interview, and her interview is also uh, on my webpage. So you'll enjoy that too. Her name was Barbara. Welcome, Ellen. Uh, thank you, Carol. I appreciate being here and trying to feel younger than my age, right? We're all younger than our age. Let's start with what inspired you. I mean, if you want to talk a little bit about your career and, and if that had anything to do with a route that your life has taken, that's fine. But if not, let's just start with what inspired you to consider foster parenting. Well, I say most of the credit goes to my wife. Um, when my own, I have, we have three sons of our own who are all grown and have their own kids now. Um, when they were little kids, we did host. Um, kids and ultimately one boy in particular for several years for a couple of weeks during the summer who came from um, inner city New York in a program called the Fresh Air Fund. So we had some history of taking in kids for a period of time to give them a little break from their daily routines. And um, and we stopped that after a while when one, the boy who was coming most of the time outgrew it. And then we were busy with our own child rearing. And we'd already been kind of socially conscious about issues involving children. In my yeah. own job, my wife Barbara was a middle school teacher and um, and worked with kids all the time. I didn't work with kids in my job directly, but I was involved in a lot of programs that affected the lives of kids, particularly okay. kids in need. Mm-hmm. Such um, as? Can you give us an example of that? Yes, I would say one of the things that, at least during the course of my employment, we were involved in helping develop uh, or or backing properties that would house families who uh, didn't have the income to pay to pay rents, and and often I would be involved in going to tenant meetings, meeting with people at particular issues involving their landlords, and often issues yeah. got into such things as thing with lead paint removal, which has been an issue for yes. young kids and still is, unfortunately, in, in parts of the country, although I, I'm probably not following that as closely as I did um, when I had my day job. Ultimately, uh, my wife Barbara was teaching in a middle school in a, in a school that was seeing a lot of kids being removed from class and put into foster care. And she uh, spoke to me about the potential for us to become foster parents. And it wasn't an easy decision because our kids were all grown out of the house. We had a lot of things going on in our lives that were kind of for, for fun at the time. And so we talked about it and decided ultimately to get a license through our State Department of Children and Families. And um, with an eye toward more emergency placements rather than long-term placements, Ultimately, it turned out otherwise. The first thing that happened with us was um, the fir- very first placement we took were two sisters who, and I can talk about them a little bit more later because okay. uh, they really became the subject of the novel that I wrote. Okay, They're really sure. the models for that book. But they, they were two girls who had been both physically and sexually abused. They'd been physically abused by their mother. Um, in a variety of ways, you know, hair dragging, hit with objects, all kinds of things. And they both had been sexually abused by different men in their mother's life. And uh, and in one case, uh, the younger of the two girls had been abused by a single person over a course of something like six years from the time she was about three years old. 
um, and um, and that resulted in ultimately a, a prosecution and a trial several years later. The older girl had been actually abused later by another another boyfriend of the mother, and and the, the thing that's sort of telling, and I think what foster parents and new ones really have to keep in mind, is uh, when these girls came to us, they'd been in more foster homes than you can count already by the age of 12 and 13. They'd been in several schools, and so they knew more about the foster system than we did as first-time foster parents. Um, so I think when you're particularly starting out as foster parents, it's possible that you're going to get kids who really kind of have been around the block a little bit. And so they may understand more about what's about to happen in some ways than the parent does. Why do you think this is such a huge problem that they have to go to so many different homes? Is it a lack of education on the uh, for the foster parents that they're not trained properly? Like what is the reason or is it strictly a personality, you know, difficulty that they are having with the kids or what do you see it? Depending, okay. uh, depending on the circumstances, you kind of hope it's not a lack of training, um, but it, it could be that. But I think often the match isn't very good. In the case of um, the, the two sisters we took in it for, they've been in a few different homes where I mean, the match between them and the families probably wasn't ideal because there were too many kids in the house. Okay. And these girls needed a lot of attention. And so that was one problem. It can be situations where the kids really aren't aren't acting right. It may be situations where a family moves. Um, in the case of our daughters, they were in and out of foster homes. Their mother kept getting custody back of them, and they, they would be removed. In one case, they went to a relative for a while, and that didn't work out well because there was some abuse in that situation from a boyfriend of, a, of the aunt of the, of the girls. So there are all kinds of reasons why <clears throat> these things happen. You're told that money shouldn't be the reason why someone goes into foster care. And hopefully it isn't for most people. So for some people, yes, I've heard in that. which case you may not get the kind of um, relationship between foster parents and the kids that you would hope would happen. That's so sad because it is ultimately the kids that suffer. They also know the system too, and they know how to work it, right? They definitely know how to work it. And and I think some of these things you can't really prove, and I honestly don't know if there have been studies done, but, but um, my instinct tells me that most kids who go into a foster home <clears throat> um, to work out because they want some stability in their mm -hmm, life, mm -hmm. especially if they've been moving around a lot. They don't have peer relationships. They don't trust anybody. Um, they just want things to be calm. And that's not, of course, in every single case. You may have a child who's got a behavioral problem, but often the system deals with the system. The, the state agencies that are responsible for dealing with kids when they find out that there's an issue will sometimes have better, uh, different facilities for kids who have extreme behavioral problems. And, uh, or they may wind up in a so-called therapeutic foster home where parents are supposedly better trained to deal with kids who have emotional and psychological problems that are beyond kind of the, the typical psychological problem for a kid who's being moved around or abused. And I would say the thing that strikes me and I kind of learn more about the issue of abuses as we've gone along is the number of people who, and I, I think you've probably interviewed many of these people on your show, who are never identified by any system. Yes. Who go through abuse their whole lives through at least teenagehood and and uh, have nobody really aware 
or doing anything about their situation. So you get kids who have been through that and then you get and then you get the kids who have been in and out of systems and and don't know which end is up where who's going to be safe for them and who isn't it's kind of a so, vicious cycle isn't it um yes and you know I, probably the biggest issue for any child is developing trust in adults especially if they've been mistreated by adults one way or another and, you know, getting a young person to trust under those circumstances is pretty challenging. And it takes a whole lot of people probably to get through that if you ever do. And, and for with some people, it may not happen. A little anecdote, if I can. We do workshops now, which includes actually, um, as a presenter, both my wife, me, and and the foster former foster daughter of ours, who's really the, the main model for the main character in my novel, often when we speak or if we speak to a group that includes foster kids, particularly older foster kids, they'll always identify with our former foster daughter. Um, and in one case, we were speaking at a children's village that included both parents and foster kids. And afterward, she'd been talking to a about a 16-year-old boy, and I wound up talking to him. And he was telling me about issues he had with things that he wished he could tell his foster mother about. And so I, I asked him and what his relationship was he felt with the foster mother. He said, she's really good. I really like her. I said, well, have you confided in her with what her, with what you, what's bothering you? He said, no, I really haven't. I said, well, um, ha, are you seeing a psychologist? And I would, would have guessed he was, and he was. And I said, have you talked about that with the psychologist? I said, because I'll tell you, the only way I think you can find out whether you can trust somebody is to try and trust them in the first place. Good point. Um, you know, if you really think your foster mother is the woman you think she is, then she'll probably be quite open to listening to you and, and talking to you about what's on your mind in particular. Uh, and I think if you don't feel comfortable doing that yet, you should certainly make that your first order of business with your psychologist, because if you really want to move ahead with your life and and um, get yourself into a positive thinking kind of mode, you've got to really get to where you feel you can trust people. And I think that's easily the biggest issue. And and I and that's why I think when kids go into a foster home, especially when they're old enough to be aware of what's going on with them, um, that uh, they don't know who they can trust and yes. they just want some stability. And that's what builds the trust then. Yes. Do you know, um, are you aware of any kind of stats uh, among foster families, foster parenting regarding success rates? Decision. I know what the national statistics are with so-called success, whatever whatever yes. that's, that's supposed to mean. Mm -hmm. it, and I don't think it, mean, it means financial success necessarily. I mean, hopefully you get that. But it includes particularly the ability to kind of get through life in a way that keeps moving you forward or dealing with things that are setbacks in ways that aren't totally self-destructive or, or self-defeating. And this so-called success rate is terrible. It's something like 4%, oh, really? which means um, nationally, the number of kids kind of in and out of foster care during the course of a year is well over 500,000, maybe oh, towards 600,000. And supposedly at any one time, there's about 460,000 kids in foster care. And I don't know how, to what extent that reflects kids who are in other kinds of uh, situations besides direct foster care, meaning group homes or shelters and, 
And I think it includes all of that, those, those numbers. And then when you get into something, <clears throat> excuse me, that my wife and I have been getting into more recently, and we're still getting our feet wet in this, is uh, the degree to which kids who go on to higher education out of foster care stick with it. And that's a terrible number, too. Oh, really? Uh, it hovers somewhere between 5 and 9%. And, you know, a lot of that isn't so much a trust issue as it is an ability to kind of deal with um, situations that don't throw you for a loop. They may not be uh, life-changing, but they get, they're so disruptive to how you handle every day that a lot of these kids aren't able to do it. And, and while you can say, well, a lot of teenagers, you know, whether they've been in foster care or abused or not, have the same problem, it's so typical among foster kids that, that you can say it exists among them to a much larger proportion than it does against for the average teenager. And, and so you get a, a, a person who, whether it's you know, a, a somewhat older teenager in foster care or who goes on to either higher education or into a job um, where statistically you get this big fallout rate when you talk about 4% of every, in any given year of over 460,000 kids at any one time, um, you know that it isn't just school, it isn't just work, it's life in general that, that they're kind of not used to adjusting to circumstances. And so how do you overcome that? And that's one of the things that my wife and I have really been working at in a workshop that, that we do. In kids that need to be fostered, there are also circumstances, I'm sure, that where the parents have died. And so they aren't necessarily coming from an abusive situation. Mm. Is that different? And have you run across that at all? Uh, no, I haven't. I mean, I, and I and I guess it's going to vary. You know, if the kids don't have any relatives, for example, to take them in that situation, um, I think at the very least um, they're going to be in a situation where I guess they're not sure what what's going to happen to them next. So they need a lot of support. Mm -hmm. I'm sure psychologically, just to make them feel as though they're going to be part of something that isn't. Um, going to leave them kind of hanging hanging out for themselves or having to fend for themselves. Now, I, I don't know of anyone like that myself, so I can't really speak to that very well, but I would think those kids need every bit the psychological. Is the system geared to doing that? Um, I don't know for certain. I mean, I would guess that kids in that situation are probably going to be on a faster track toward adoption, if that's possible. Mm. Um, then, then a, a kid, another kid might be who needs uh, needs other kinds of psychological support. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I okay. think uh, supposedly in foster care, and this isn't exactly your question, but about 25% of the kids in foster care are available for adoption. That was and my it, next question. <laughs> yeah, at any given time. So, for example, the kids that that we took in. None of them were available for adoption for a variety of reasons. And, mm -hmm. and, and now I think even more and more, a lot of the states are going more toward efforts at re family reunification, which is kind of tilting away from adoption for those kids. Right. Right. Um, in our case, there was never a cessation of family or parental rights in the parents. So those mm -hmm. kids weren't available for adoption. And ultimately, there was reunification. Um and uh, after several years, really. And so you get 
the kids who who are available for adoption, I would I would think, and I really don't know the right answer to that, that that the kids who really are in a situation where the parents are gone suddenly, they haven't been abused, that they probably on a on as fast a track to adoption as probably the states can do. And I, I don't know how it's handled normally. But there's so many lives affected, aren't there? I mean, it's 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 just as you're talking, I'm I'm saying. I mean, you have the you have the parents who may be going through some very serious problems mm-hmm. of their own, whether it be yeah. that they are abusers or alcoholics or whatever, right. and they're they're trying to possibly fix that so that they can get their kids back and then you have the ones who really don't care and who have been you know the abusers and I mean I'm sure you have seen it all and the kids are caught in the middle building the trust and the confidence in these kids so that they can go on with their lives it must be a horrendous undertaking um it's you do see all kinds of circumstances and and that's why one size really can't fit all. But I think this this boy I mentioned to you, who I spoke to after the conference, I'm pretty certain in his case, the mother may have had an abuse, a, a substance abuse issue. I'm not sure, but she just couldn't deal with child raising. He was not a problem so far as I know, and he wasn't physically abused so far as I know. Um, and the, at the moment, my wife and I are, are into doing some mentoring through a program that's affiliated with the state agency. And we actually have a first-year college student to mentor, which kind of got us into some other things we're doing right now. But but in her case, I really don't know her whole background because we're not her foster parents. Mm. But but so far as I know, she was a management issue for her, for her parents. I don't think she was a substance abuser at all. The other long-term um, foster child that we took in was actually a child of a relative of ours who had big drug issues and and to some extent unfortunately still does although we think he's trying hard to overcome them at the moment and there was not physical abuse of him there was an issue involving his sister being abused by an older relative not her father but an older relative that may have pushed them both toward toward um their own substance abuse, they were, if anything, they had kind of a spoiled growing up. They were solidly in the middle class. They had this lesson, that lesson, got to go on trips and all of that. So they didn't fit any kind of uh, direct abuse model, but they were got to be out of hand and their parents couldn't deal with it. And actually, there was a criminal issue involving the boy and and the, the state ultimately uh, agreed to, to make them wards of the state and uh, and put them into various situations. And ultimately, we were asked if we would take the, this young man in, and we did. So his situation was really a lot different from the situation, for example, with the two girls who we had started off as our first foster kids. So you're faced with kids who come from all kinds of situations and not necessarily abusive. Um, there are a lot of reasons why kids get into the, the system. The other thing I'll say is when I speak to to book groups, I always make a point of bringing along, and this is when I'm speaking in Connecticut, that where I have good access to to information from our state agency. Um, There are so-called town reports that come out every year or every fiscal year, which ends in September, I think it is for most uh, towns, that show – the number of cases reported to the state agency of suspected abuse and the number that are confirmed. And and I make a point of picking on the reports from several towns within the area, including small towns, inner cities, so that people can see that you're not talking about a, a situation confined to what most people might think as, let's say, uh, disadvantaged neighborhoods. They come from all over the place, often hidden better in, in 
in, in communities where there's a higher income level, uh-huh. but it exists in those places. And it's sort of interesting to me the way the statistics are, are classified by the state. Um, generally, they'll separate into different columns, let's say, neglect, sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. Um, and obviously, if you look at the number of cases confirmed, it's clear that a lot of the kids suffer more than one kind of abuse because the types of abuse are always higher than the number of kids they find are abused, which means mm. a child is being abused in more than one way. And I don't know how oh. you totally separate emotional abuse. I see, yes. Anyway, yes. but but the, and what's also sort of interesting about those numbers is the number of confirmed cases after the state's doing an investigation is really a pretty low percentage. It's something like 20% typically of the number of cases um, that are reported as suspected abuse. And I don't know all the reasons for that. I'm guessing in some case there may be a lack of evidence for the state to proceed. Maybe there's uh, no one willing to make a complaint if that's what it amounts to. But but it comes out to 20%, which means about 80% of the claims during the course of a year are not confirmed. And who knows what situation that may leave a child in. I, I don't think the state agencies, and I, I know ours the best, here in Connecticut, uh, I don't think they are failing to try and identify situations. I think there's a lot of pressure on them to try and be as careful as they can in identifying situations. But there's also a big movement today not to separate kids from their birth families. And so, you know, it's hard to know what the right answer is about whether it's okay to take a child away or not take a child away when there's any doubt about whether the parents are capable or not. And of course, the issue on the state is once they're involving something, involved in something, and if they make decisions, decide not to, to do anything to remove a child, and God forbid something happens to the child, then the state agency is that's right. know, gets yeah. all the bad publicity. In the meantime, it's the kid who suffers. That's right. It's tough. As an outsider, when I look at foster parents, the whole foster, the whole scenario, right. I see, first of all, that there would be people who would be looking at it as a monetary income, right? To, yep. to be able to to get some more money into the home to possibly help their own children. I mean, have you run across that? Well, um, let's say I know of situations okay. like that. All right. and, 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 and in talking to people who deal with a lot of foster situations, such as you know, people who run some of the children's villages or other situations like that, they say there are probably – too many people in that situation. I'm a really? saying majority. And what I do know is theoretically, the state, when the state figures out the amount of money it's going to pay a foster family, it takes into account really what it is it needs for the child to be provided for, not the family, right. but that child. And I've heard stories about foster families who get a great deal of money and almost nothing winds up being spent yes. on the foster child. Um, and, and I think one of the things that, that we talk about in our workshop, um, especially is if the child, if the foster child isn't the focus of the family when it Mm -hmm. comes to what their relationship is supposed to be and, and including the money they get from the state, then they're really failing to do what they should for the child. And, um, that's the last thing a child needs to feel like, okay, they're just the meal ticket for the family. Um, and and I think that does happen. Even even where it doesn't happen, I can tell you, I, I, 
I don't mean to blow our own horn. I don't know if that was special in any way, but we didn't get nearly the amount of money uh, from the state that that care of what we we spent on the kids. Um, no, that's good to know because I'm sure there are other people out there just like you. And and, and so and, and there's other realities too. Uh, for simple things like you get a clothing stipend for the kids. Well, um, it tends as if you got kids who are still growing, that stipend tends not to match <laughs> the need for the kids that they're <laughs> for the clothing. Exactly. They're getting. So, so and and of course, a lot of that state legislatures are going to allocate or appropriate mm-hmm. for the state agencies to spend. You know, there's a whole political thing That's there too right. that. Sometimes the state agencies don't control, you know, having been a federal lawyer for a long time in my life, I'm pretty aware of what what appropriations and budget constraints can do to an agency. Um, You often feel when you're doing those jobs that you think you're doing a lot better than people think you are because you just you know what you're being given to work with. And I think I'm a little sympathetic to that from the state agencies, but also tend to be mindful, I think, of when I think a state a uh, worker, a caseworker is doing what I think they ought to be doing for the child versus when they're not. Because we've seen many examples of both and, and including some pretty heroic state workers, I'll say. That's too. good to hear, too. That's why I say, you know, I, I, I think the things you hear, you see, read in the newspapers typically mm. comes to the foster system are always going to be bad stories. Of course. So you're <laughs> never going to see anything that's good. Absolutely. And, uh, um, and we try to be pretty balanced in presenting kind of our view of foster care I both my wife and me you know um, understand that there's some really high points some low points probably mostly in between both from who the foster parents are and also who the who it is that has to administer these things for the states the way I look at you and your wife now I've interviewed both of you and mm-hmm. what I see and what hopefully is the case the majority of the time is that you go into this with a big heart for one that you want you have the desire to help you have the desire to help form lives and characters etc but also there is a sacrifice you're not looking you're not walking into it thinking what can i get out of this but it's what can I give to this? What am I sacrificing here? Because whenever we make that sacrifice to help someone else in whatever capacity, we end up reaping the benefits anyway on mm-hmm. top of the person who we are sacrificing for. And when I, what I mean by sacrifice is even, like you said, the, you know, the money that you received did not compensate you completely. I mean, that is a sacrifice. You know, there's a time sacrifice. There's, there's an emotional one. I mean, there are many different sacrifices that I believe people with big hearts, especially in fostering teenagers, must realize tremendous benefits down the road in satisfaction and just to see them turn out to be the kind of people that you were hoping that they would be. That's exceptionally, certainly very true. And I think one of the things that that we say when we talk to groups of people who who either maybe are foster parents already or are thinking about it or, or just getting involved in some way or another is that um, you can't really care too much about whether you're going to step on someone's toes if what mm. you need to do is to advocate for the child. Good. And Good. I can tell you, we got into a situation like that 
um, in a big way with the first caseworker we ever had who <laughs> was really not a very good caseworker. Ultimately was doing things that were more convenient mm. for her than they were for the benefit of mm -hmm. the child. We got into a pretty heavy thing with her. <laughs> and, I, and I think to me, I mean, we would do the same thing for our own children and in some ways probably were less protective of our own kids. That, we were that makes sense. Kids. Sure. Sure. Um, because we didn't think they needed it quite as much. And, and so everywhere from educational, you know, dealing with the schools where we thought there was something going on in the curriculum that didn't take account for kind of the missing pieces in this child's education, which in the case of the two sisters who came to us, they were big, big pieces missing because they'd been in so many schools, oh, okay. moved around so much, mm -hmm. uh, think that people don't think about. And, and I will say, and this is just me talking, and I, I can't prove it, but I think one thing that's taught me something that I never really thought about much before we got into this was, you know, look out for the kid in the school who looks like a loner, um, who know, many kids know, you never know what's going on with that child at home. And it's That's often right. the kid who's going to be bullied or made fun of or whatever it is in the school. And um, and I don't know, I didn't wasn't a bully, but I, I, I would imagine I was a kid when I was growing up who really thought, hey, that kid's weird or whatever, you know. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And, and I think it, you learn that there's an awful lot going on in the head of, of a kid in school who's behaving that way. And, um, Interesting. And so I think I become a lot more sensitive to that uh -huh. and the plight of kids in that situation. And, and I think the thing that kind of scares you a little bit when you look at statistics about the number of kids who have been abused or, or whatever, and those are only the cases that come to light, that how many kids there are who go through things in life that you think should be unimaginable. Uh -huh. and, and I've come to know. I know some people who you know now or who are yes, other writers yes, who have been through yes. things terribly and and they're great people and say, who would ever mistreat that person? That's you know? right. <laughs> I know. Their, their parents <laughs> really missed out on this kid. You know? Tell uh, us about your novel, Crocodile Mothers Eat Their Young. Yes. Now, the no now novel, is it more of a, a biography than a novel? And, uh, well, it's a I would call it a fictionalized memoir. Okay. Um, the background is I like to write. I, I wrote some things years ago that never went anywhere, and, and I and I was busy with my day job. And my wife said, "Won't you won't you write something here?" Um, and I said, "Well, you know, I I got to do something that that I think works from a writer's point of view, but without being I, I couldn't do a memoir. One, I'm not the person that most of the things happen to." So I couldn't exactly do a memoir. So what I wound up doing, let me explain the title first. Sure. Okay. <laughs> which, ex, which is explained fairly early in the book. The, the book, as I said, is basically modeled on these two sisters and particularly the younger one who wound up living us quite a bit longer than the older one did. Um, and when she was with us, she was watched, I guess she had watched something on like the Discovery Channel one day. And my wife and I were in our room, and she came running in and said, and she was about 14 at the time. She came first when she was 12, but she was about 14, I'd say, when this happened. Came running in and said, I can't believe it. They just said in the show that crocodile mothers will eat their young. <laughs> and and the thing that was amazing about that was we didn't bring, bring this to her attention, but after she left the room, I said to my wife, you know how ironic, how ironic that statement is? Her own mother was really doing the same to her. 
Hmm. So it seemed to me like a great title for for the book. Um, my publisher, um, they're called All Things That Matter Press, and I'm forever grateful for them to taking the book. Um, they like the title. <laughs> so so uh, that's what it is. It's kind of funny. When we speak, I have a little display board that has a picture of the book on it and the title. And watching people's expression when they see the <laughs> title is kind of funny. Some people, you know, laugh. They think it's funny. Uh, and others look at it and they say, what? You know, what's that? Um, <laughs> the book has a subtitle that's printed out of there because my wife was afraid people would think it was a book about animals. So, uh, <laughs> that's true. Which, okay. which in some ways, I guess, mm-hmm. metaphorically it is. But but anyway, it's the, the subtitle is a, a Child's Story of Abuse and Survival. Mm. Um the book is kind of written in, in two voices uh, in alternating chapters. Uh, it's written in the first person uh, in what I call the present tense from the point of view of the foster father. I don't know where I got that idea, but it I wonder like it fit all right. <laughs> um, and, and, and that's very, very close. All of those chapters to things that, that actually happened. Some are exaggerated, some things are left out, some things are totally fictionalized, but not that much greatly fictionalized okay. so that it's very far away from things that actually happened because I, I know what happened. I was there and I went through these things. Uh, the other chapters are told in the third person from the, uh, and they really include the events of, the, of abuse that occurred. They're not dwelt on in the book. Uh, they appear in a, a few isolated places and not overly graphic although not without that because i wanted readers um, who maybe not weren't familiar with what happens to have some idea of what a kid goes through when mm-hmm. when these events of abuse happen the point of the book though is more the aftermath of the abuse okay Excellent. what happens to these kids mm-hmm. psychologically and then they get into a foster system what happens to them there and what are the kinds of things they have to face and and I like to think of it as a pretty honest portrayal of both the foster system and what happens in, in an abusive household. And when I say fair from a foster point of view, I, I think it shows homes that were not so good, homes that were good, um, workers that were not very good, workers that were quite good um, and helpful to the child so that anyone who um, – who reads it will have some flavor for the system. And, and when when we when I do speaking, when I do book shows, I read several paragraphs from the mm-hmm. book. Okay. Um, but when we, um, and I want to find this. When when we um, just do our workshops, there's only one section in particular where uh, that I read. And to me, and and I like to read it because I think it expresses best. My view of what happens to a, a child when they're in foster care, okay. and it's not very long, but if you let me read it, absolutely. It's, uh, the setting is it's something that's typical for these kids. It's in a school conference where basically the agenda for what their educational needs are going to be set, and and the room is full of people. It's full of the educators from the school, administrators from the school, people from the school system that the child came from previously because. Typically, if that's their home district, they're going to have to pay for the costs of educating the child in the new school district. You've got mm. uh, the caseworker, 
someone called the surrogate parent, and I'll be darned if I know what they do. They, an architect, <laughs> just sat there, didn't say anything during the whole meeting. Um, I thought we were sort of the surrogate parents, but I guess we really weren't. Any, anyway, um, they're going around the table, and in the scene in the book, the foster father is sitting there thinking, and he's watching all these things going on. Um, and and so the book reads, as these experts were about shaping her future, it occurred to me that young Tina, the character's name, had no control over her life now, and in fact, never had. For life, her life was happening to her instead of being lived by her, as if she were merely some mute rock, forced to accept whatever the elements threw at her until she simply eroded into history. And the foster father says something aloud that that's not going to happen in this case, kind of, and, and they kind of are startled in the room by him reacting that way. But I think the point really is, I think it's true. The, the, uh, too many of these kids really aren't living life. They, um, mm. Things are happening to them. Um, either they're abused, they're taken from their home, they don't know what's going to happen next. They have almost no control over what their outside activities are going to be, if they have any, which they typically don't. How do you get a child into a situation where they can have some control over their life, live their life, and be ready to go outside uh, and, and, and live a life that has some kind of goal and aim to them that they think they can manage. And um, it's not easy when you have someone who basically is um, being told this is what you're going to do now or, or you know, you can't do this ever and isn't ever in a decision-making um, situation for themselves. And I think that should be a real goal for, for foster parents. And, and, you know, if you got younger foster kids, and I can't claim to be expert in that because we didn't have younger foster kids, but we had kids of our own. And I think the best thing to try to do, I think, is to give a kid as much leeway as you can while providing enough discipline so they know where the limits are. Um, and by discipline, I mean it's not punishment, but I mm-hmm, mean mm-hmm. understanding, you know, what's okay to do and what's not okay to do. Right. Um, and what gets you someplace <laughs> that makes sense for you versus versus not. Well, self-discipline too, teaching them boundaries. Um, it's, it's self-discipline is probably one of the hardest things for kids in that situation. And, and um, part, for one thing, a lot of what they know is discipline isn't discipline. It's really – it's mistreatment. Yes. And so getting them to understand there's a difference. That There's a book by um, an author named Kale Randis. I don't know if you know the book, but – it's called Spilled Milk, and it's basically a fictionalized account of her growing up years, which were pretty horrific. And I guess it was a fairly popular book. And the the title comes from a situation where she, anytime anything, little thing happened to her household, she was abused. Mm-hmm. And she winds up, I guess she was a teenager maybe, um, goes, to, gets, goes to a friend's house. She's invited to a friend's house. And while they're at dinner, someone knocks over a glass of milk, and she's waiting for the room to explode. Uh. And it doesn't. And she realizes that some things just aren't a big deal. Everything was a, an event of punishment in her in her household, whereas in this household, oh, you knocked over spill, you knocked over right. milk, clean right. it up. Right. And the point being, you know, she was so used to a, an adverse reaction to even the slightest thing. That it astounded her when, gee, there are people where these things don't happen that way, <laughs> and and there's a way to you know live your life where not everything is earth shaking. That you kind of roll with a punch, or it's not even a punch sometimes. That's powerful. 
Uh, it really is, and and um, and I think you know, the more I read, I, I've taken to reading a fair number of memoirs by people who've been through this for a lot of reasons, and I've gotten to know some of the the authors in some way or another, and it always astounds me what great people they are. Number one, and number number two, I think in some cases more forgiving of the people who did terrible things to them than I think I could ever be. I just. Mm. <laughs> you know, I, I was lucky. I had a really stable household. My larger family was very close. They saw each other all the time, meeting you know, aunts and uncles and all that. And I don't think it ever occurred to me that there were kids who yes. have that when I was growing up. Never thought about. Probably one of the reasons it made you a good foster parent, because you want to give other kids the same opportunities that you had. Yeah, you, you'd really hope you can do mm-hmm. that. Um, the the daughter of ours, who is now doing workshops with us, is now doing workshops with us, is um, is an amazing person. You, you talk about um, giving to the child. Well, she gives back to us all the time. You know, and I think that's always one of the great rewards you can have if you can actually feel like you've helped somebody along yes. their life so they can have a better life than, than they experienced. It's not going to be perfect, but to where they really think it's worth it to them to try and do things for themselves in the world. It's rewarding to you, but also to have them kind of um, let you understand or inside them to understand where they're coming from and what they're struggling with and how they're trying to do it and make you a part of that. It's rewarding back to you, too. That's right. I think that happens with your own kids, obviously. But, you know, to get that with a child who had no reason to trust you at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And get to that point is, is pretty rewarding. And it's not perfect. As I said, this young relative of ours who had drug issues, he was more or less okay here, but we certainly weren't able to correct ultimately the drug issues. And, you know, as he's gotten older, he struggled with it. So mm-hmm. it's not perfect. But I think even in a case like that, I think um, we still did the same things. We advocated in mm-hmm. school, but he was a pretty good student when he was sober, and which was a lot of the time when he was here, but he was being drug tested all the time when he when he was with us until the very end. We went off to a college with a good scholarship and promptly went back to drug use. Oh, my goodness. And and so – and he's still struggling with that, and he still can be a good student when he's that way. So, you know, and so that's obviously a disappointment, and, and we worry about that. So, you know, there's no illusions that things mm-hmm. are going to mm-hmm. When you take a child in, but I think it's like with any person you're trying to help kind of grow in a, in a world is at least try to give them the tools that can get them there. Um, whether they do it or not, you can't force a situation to happen, but you can at least, you know, open the doors, help someone to understand these are the things that you can do. And because something bad has happened to you doesn't mean your future has to be that way. And and I know that's something that, that you dwell on, and I've seen enough examples of that myself that I know it's true. I, I think the saddest thing to me is, and it still kind of shakes me up a little bit when it happens, I've probably had well, maybe four experiences or so at book shows where the audience has nothing to do with foster care. They're just someone to hear an author talk about a book. Some, and it's typically an older middle-aged woman, will come up to me and say, I've never told anyone before but I was abused growing up. Hmm. It like knocks me over every time I because bet. one, I'm a stranger. Right. And I wrote this book. Yeah, but I'm a stranger. They're telling me, and you know, and I'm always a little bit unsure of exactly what how to respond, except to <laughs> say, you know, gee, I'm, 
I'm sorry that happened to you and that, you know, um, I think if you've been holding this back all this all this time that you really should go talk to someone who's a professional to help you talk about it so that at least you can maybe confront what's been bothering you all this time. And and uh, and that and, and these are people who probably otherwise look pretty successful, you mm-hmm. know, in terms of how they've managed their life generally. But obviously there's a piece of them that's been hurting all this time. Who should buy your book? Um, I'd say everybody, but <laughs> but, but but I <laughs> who would do, say who does it appeal to? Who is you know? It... Well, I, I would I would hope that anyone anyone who's interested in maybe is there something they can do to help kids who who are in need? Um, anyone who who's I, I'll say I, I get a little nervous about people who have been through. A difficult experience reading the book just because I'm not sure how it's going to affect them. Um, I wouldn't say that they shouldn't read it. I'll say that my foster daughter has read the book and while it wasn't easy for her to read, she said she thought that it identified a lot of what was going through her mind, even though oh, she had that's good. Okay. Directly. Mm-hmm. And and I think I think that tells me that maybe it's not a bad book for someone who's been through the experience to read. I think anyone who would like to be a foster parent or otherwise be involved with kids okay. who are in abusive situations would be good to read the book. As I said, I think it's pretty honest. I'll say that the reviews that I've seen in the book that were done by people who were involved in, in foster care as professionals or you know social workers and like have been really positive. They thought that it really kind of hit the mark in a lot of places, which was satisfying okay. to me because okay. that's what I hoped it would do. But good. also told me that maybe it is would be a good resource for people who are interested in getting involved and in helping kids who are, are in this situation. Um, the book has been listed as a resource on the on the, uh, on the uh, resource list for the National Foster Parent Association. Okay. So, okay. Okay. so that's one group that's done that. So I guess, you know, from their point of view, it's something right. that they think is useful for foster parents to see. Excellent. I appreciate that. Now, is there anything else in closing that you would like to share that we possibly have missed or any call to action to the audience? Well, you know, I'd say for one thing, there are a lot of ways that people who are listening who want to help uh, kids or or in in dire straits or have a problem can do is there are a lot of organizations – in every state of the union and, and certainly in, in every big city and, and often smaller towns, the, the, the CASA organizations, um, which is a, a group that basically provides people who are going to go into court um, and often be um, guardians ad litem, basically look for the child's interest during court procedures. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the CACs, which are organizations that that provide support to kids who are in need. So um, those groups or any kind of foster group or a child abuse advocacy group that even contributing money to those groups to help fund their staffs and and their efforts. Um, They're all over the place. um, They're easy to find online. Uh, There are more than there are so many of them. It probably should be upsetting that there's a need for so many. Really? Yes. in every state of the union, whether adoption agents, organizations, child child abuse prevention organizations, foster organizations, every kind of group that's aimed at that, they're just all over the place. And I know, and they're they're usually very good organizations. And um, 
It's easy to tell by going online and just Googling um, child child abuse uh, advocacy or foster care advocacy in your community, and you can find all kinds of places to do that. Um, the other thing I'll say, and things that, that people don't talk about much, and something we're my wife and I are just getting into, and we're really kind of green on it, and we're, we're learning from lots of people right now, is dealing with the issues of kids who are getting out of foster care um, and into college in particular, where a lot of the kids who either in foster situations or other similar situations like homeless or had been in abusive situations that was never identified otherwise, that, that the colleges often don't address those needs very well. And it's hard to sometimes because kids don't want to identify themselves to the system. But, you know, particular kinds of um, things that kids need in a way of mentoring for life skills, that kids have life skill uh, issues, uh, money management, which most kids have. And other, you, you asked earlier about things that might apply across the board. Certainly a lot of these things do. I don't know. A lot of adults could use money management skills. So. That's right. <laughs> and, and then um, time management or just knowing who to talk to when you've got a problem. Uh-huh. A lot of those things are what leads to kids um, who have been in foster situations or other similar situations kind of not making it as they go through life where, where um, they just not sure how to handle the situation or who to talk to about handling the situation. And that's very common. And, and, uh, and so kind of life skills training and uh, very important things to do. And, and I'd say volunteering to groups that may involve mentoring is something that, that many people could do. Yes, and usually it's right. not all that time consuming. Right. Well, Ellen, this has definitely been educational and inspiring to know that there are people like yourself, many of them, I'm sure, who have a heart for these lost, lost kids and are able to give of themselves and of their time and their home and their family to help them make something of their lives, you know, a situation that is heart-wrenching. And Mm -hmm. you hear about it so often, and it's so good to know that there are people who are willing to give that love to the unloved. Well, we appreciate, I know I appreciate, and I know my wife too, the opportunity to speak with you, and we admire what you're doing and and really appreciate the chance to talk to you. Thank you for that. And if anybody has questions, of course, all your contact information will be in the show notes, and you certainly can um, address those as people come to you and ask you questions. And I thank you again for taking this time and for sharing your story and your book, Crocodile mothers eat their young. Correct. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. Thank you, Ellen, and goodbye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.